Well, for our time together in the preaching of the Word of God, take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I am always excited to preach the Word of God. Every Sunday, I am so excited to teach and preach the Word of God. And this week has been an especially wonderful week because I've been in the Word every day and nearly teaching every day. And and uh, today is no different because... I'm in the best place, and that is with you in this pulpit and to serve you the Word of God. I want to preach 2 Timothy chapters 3 and 4, but I want to begin in chapter 4, verse 2. And I have as my sermon title, Christian Ministry in a Difficult Context. I'm thinking of our world. I'm thinking of our society. I'm thinking of our culture. I'm thinking of... The place in which you and I live and the place in which you and I minister in our day-to-day lives. How do you do Christian ministry in a difficult context? Follow with me for the answer to that. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2. This is what God says. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove Rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Why do we do what we do at Christ Fellowship Bible Church? Why why do we focus on and emphasize the things that we do when we gather together? That when we meet on Sunday, as you well know, the predominant portion of time is focused on the reading and preaching of the Word of God. That when we gather on Wednesday night, we study the Word of God and that prepares us for the church-wide prayer meeting. Why are we resolutely committed to the preaching of the Word of God? Why do we do what we do? I suppose it's a good question to ask that we kind of take a step back and just sort of say, okay, we don't want to just do things because we've always done things that way. We need to ask with intentionality, why do we do it this way? Why do we preach? Why do we study the Word? Why do I herald the Word of God? Why are we so committed to this book and the teaching of this book? And the, and the question is especially important because, as you well know, we are living in a day that absolutely despises authority. Why do we preach the Word of God? And when there are many, even in churches all across our nation, that kind of scoff. They scoff at the saints of old and the men of God in generations past who stood and preached the word of God seriously, urgently, powerfully, and compellingly. Why do we do this? Why do we preach the word? When our world is increasingly vocal that they don't want our monologues. They don't want hard preaching. We don't want your demands. And it certainly doesn't want hell. And nor does our world want exclusivity in Jesus Christ alone. And our world certainly doesn't want a God who is absolutely sovereign. Why are we so devoted to the preaching 
of the word of God. Why do we do this? Why do we spend a good bit of our time when we gather to the preaching of the word? And, and maybe we even take a step back beyond that and just ask the simple questions. Why did God design the church? And what is the church? And, and what is the church for? And what is the church to do when it meets together? What is the focus of the church? What is the purpose of the church? I want to give you a quote that I came across this week from the excellent book that I commend to you, written by Mark Dever. It's a fundamental, foundational book titled Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Mark Dever says this, quote, If you are looking for a good church, the preaching of the word of God is the most important thing to consider. Dever says, I don't care how friendly you think the church members are. I don't care how good you think the music is. The congregation's commitment to the centrality of the word of God coming from the preacher that is the one specially gifted by God and called to that ministry, that is the most important thing you can look for in a church. And he's spot on. He is absolutely right. And as we think about what a church is and what a church is to be and to do, let's remember that the Bible teaches that the church is an assembly of Christians who meet together to worship God. The church is the gathering of Christians who meet together to worship God, to hear the word of God faithfully preached, and we, we pray together, and we pursue Christian love together, and we are zealous for Christian holiness together. And that's what a church is. The church is an assembly of Christians who meet together to worship God. And when we think about these questions of why do we do what we do, and what is a church, and how is a church to function, the New Testament is not unclear about this. And certainly the pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, are very helpful. When the Apostle Paul wrote these pastoral letters, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul had a very close relationship with his friend Timothy. They served the Lord together many years in ministry together. They met on Paul's second missionary journey in Acts chapter 16 in about 50 A.D., and then when Timothy was born again and Timothy served with Paul, he would travel with Paul and he would be his friend, protege, and even Paul's disciple. Later on, after three missionary journeys, Paul would eventually make it to Rome. He would be imprisoned for two years there in the city of Rome. Timothy visited Paul and ministered to Paul during those two years in 61-62 AD. Well, during that time... The, Timothy pastored a church in the city of Ephesus. We know that from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. And, and, and Paul gave him a very difficult assignment. Actually, the Lord did, but Paul exhorted him that when you are there in Ephesus, you must be faithful to teach the church. You've got to raise up godly leaders. You've got to guard the gospel. You've got to develop men of God. And you need to fight for Christian holiness. Paul, 
After he was released from jail for the two years in Rome, he would then be re-imprisoned a few years after that, and he would then write another letter. It would be his last letter to his young friend Timothy, and that's what we call Second Timothy. It is the last letter of the Apostle Paul. It's like a last will from Paul to his young disciple, Timothy, in the faith. But, but hear this, though, because when Paul writes this to Timothy, the pastor, opposition is intense. And the leaders of Rome are frantic to try to stop Christianity. Timothy has a pretty tough assignment. Because Timothy finds himself as the pastor in a pretty rough city, and it's called Ephesus. Ephesus was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. It was a major port city. It was an economic hub. It was a cosmopolitan city. It was culturally diverse. It was massive in population. Nearly a quarter million people lived in that city. The city was intoxicated with entertainment, tolerant for every kind of worship. And they were lovers of worldliness and lovers of every kind of wickedness and vice. But the main draw to the city of Ephesus is what we know as the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That would be the temple of Artemis, or the Roman name for that would be Diana. The temple was massive at the center point of the city. The temple was larger than a football field. And this was an interesting form of worship in Ephesus because Artemis was the goddess of fertility, hunting, and the moon. Well, the Ephesian streets all lined through the city were full of statues to emperors, full of statues to gods and goddesses, and full of pagan idolatry all over the place. The Ephesian people, historians tell us, were people of self-love, idolatry, immorality, vanity, worldliness, open-mindedness, and tolerance. They tolerated everything except for the preaching of the gospel. And when Paul came to Ephesus on his third missionary journey and he preached the word of God, here's what we read in Acts 19 verse 9. Many heard the word, many were hardened by the word, and they were disobedient to the word, and they were speaking evil of the way before all the people. Wow. Doesn't seem to be well received when Paul came there. People were hardened and they were speaking evil of the gospel. Historians have called the city of Ephesus the vanity fair of the ancient world. The Ephesians had a reputation all over Asia Minor of being fickle, superstitious, and a very sexually immoral people. Timothy, you're the pastor in that city. You have the church in that city. You don't have the Methodists and the Baptists and the Presbyterian and the Church of Christ. You're the church and you're the pastor of the church in that city. That's a tough assignment. That's a difficult context. And yet, how do you do ministry in such a context? I mean, do you soften the message? Do you contextualize the message? Do you have to update the message? Do you revise the message? Do you modernize the message? Do you repackage the message? How in the world are we supposed to do ministry in a difficult context like that? The answer is what we read earlier in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 
This is what Paul says to Timothy in that kind of context. Look at it again in your Bible. 2 Timothy 4.2. Preach the word. That's the main driving imperative of the whole discourse surrounding it. This is, this is the driving imperative. This is the command. It's clear. It's unambiguous. It's simple. It's understandable. It's timeless. It's authoritative. It's a mandate from God. What I find so amazing, and I remind myself of this often, there's no man, no woman, No committee that ever has the authority to redefine this command. This command is not out of date. It's not out of touch. It's not irrelevant, nor is it subject to disputes. And yet we are living in times when the pulpit for the word of God is being replaced with a round table with a coffee cup. Or maybe the pulpit being replaced by an iPad stand. We are living in times when men of sober-minded dignity seem to be replaced by trendy hipsters who aspire to be more like the culture because they think they can win the culture if they just live like the culture. Now we're living in times... When men who preach authoritatively are being replaced by coaches, visionaries, sharers, leaders. Sermons are shorter. The music is longer. It's more entertaining rather than convicting and heart piercing. And so I I think on all of this and I reflect it and you see it and you've been there and you understand these sorts of things. And we have to ask the question, what drives this kind of thinking that is all around us in our culture? And the simple answer is you got to give the people what they want. And God would say to that, absolutely not. You don't do that. Because what we learn from the New Testament and all through the Word of God is the expositor, that is the preacher, is a man of God who has been in the presence of God all week long in prayer and in the study of the Word. And then he comes out of, as it were, the prayer closet and he ascends the sacred desk, as it's been called, the pulpit... And he opens his Bible and then he says, thus says the Lord. And he expounds the text and he explains the meaning of the text and explains the doctrines of the text. And then he gives specific applications from the text to your life. And he preaches to please no one but God. Because he has one duty, one responsibility, and that is to deliver God's message to God's people in full the way that God intended it to be conveyed. With authority, with power, with force, with persuasion, and with urgency. Preach the word. You could be at Ephesus, you could be in Las Vegas, you can be in St. Louis. Wherever you are, whatever context, how do we do ministry in a difficult context? I stand on this. We must preach 
the word of God. But you see that command in verse 2, though, in your Bible, don't you? Paul didn't just write 2 Timothy 4.2. One of the things, as we interpret the scripture, we interpret verses in light of the context, right? We, context is king. We love that phrase. We, we interpret the word in light of the surrounding context. So as we look at the surrounding discourse of this verse, Paul the Apostle gives Timothy four reasons why you have to preach the word in a difficult context. What is the main command? What is the main duty of every faithful church? It is to preach and teach the word of God. And you might say, well, well, what's the reason? Give me some reasons why. And Paul's going to do that in the context around 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me give you the four reasons, and then I want to go through them together with you. This will be our outline for the remainder of our time together. The four reasons why you must preach the word, number one, is because of the sinful context. The sinful context in verses 1 to 12 of chapter 3. Well, not only because of the sinful context, second of all, because you have the sufficient scriptures. You need to preach the word because of the sinful context, because you have the sufficient scriptures. And then third, you have to preach the word because you have the supreme mandate. You have the supreme mandate from God. And then the fourth reason why we have to preach the word is because there is a singular ambition that every true believer has. And he wants to finish well. For the glory of God. So I want to walk through 2 Timothy 3 and 4. Just the surrounding discourse. That's sort of before and after that one verse. Preach the word. Well Paul, why should we preach the word? Ministry in a difficult context requires that you preach the word. Why? Number one. Because of the sinful context. This is a dangerous time. You and I live in dangerous times. Timothy lived in dangerous times. Look at chapter 3. Follow with me, verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as thieves. Timothy, you need to understand that in the last days, starting with the death and resurrection of Christ, the last days are upon us. You and I are living in the last days. The New Testament was written in the last days. We are waiting the return of Christ. But in these last days, times are going to be tough. In the last days, I have in the NASB difficult times. Difficult 
The word for time is not like your watch or like a clock, like a chronological passing of time. It's, it's more of the Greek word of, a, of an era, of a season, of an age, of a period of time. There's going to come, Timothy, seasons and periods where ministry is going to be difficult. Interesting. The Greek word means violent. Violent. It's the same Greek word that is found in Matthew chapter 8 for the Gerasene demoniac who could not be bound, but he was a violent man screaming in the tombs. There is coming a time, Pastor Timothy, when there are violent eras, violent periods of time, and they are dangerous, and these are ungodly, and they're like wild animals of the raging sea, and they are bad people that mark the epics that will come. That's difficult. And we know that because of who they are. Look at the Profile in verses 2 and following. Men will be lovers of self. Often when Paul gives a list in his Greek writings, the first one is sort of the umbrella category, the general category, and everything is further defining the one. They are lovers of self. Let's define that more. Lovers of money. Boastful. Arrogant. Revilers. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, they are without self-control, they're brutal, haters of good, treacherous, and reckless, and conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They've got a form of godliness, they look good on the outside, but they have denied its power, they're hollow on the inside. Avoid them. Avoid them. Look at how dangerous they are in verse 6. Among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. They're always learning, but they're never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just like Janus and Jambres. These were two of the magicians in Egypt who opposed Moses. They oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. There are those who despise the truth. They are opposing the gospel. Verse 10, you, Timothy, followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, and my persecutions and suffering, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. That's Paul's first missionary journey. What persecutions I endured, not of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, you need to be aware, because how do you do life and ministry in a difficult context? You have to preach the word because of the sinful, dangerous context. Let me see if I can help you understand this a little bit more. What kind of a sinful era or period are we talking about? Let me just give you some words that you can think about. Uh, One of the eras in church history that came is that of sacramentalism. Sacramentalism, it's really another word for that, would be the Roman Catholic religion. Because the church has replaced God. 
It's all about the sacraments. It's all about your works. It's all about your duties. It's all about your rights that are necessary for salvation and for acceptance with God. Sacramentalism. That's one of the dangerous errors. Another dangerous period is that of rationalism. Rationalism, where reason becomes God. Another word for that would be the Enlightenment period in the 1700s. The Enlightenment period. Another dangerous era that we might mention would be that of orthodoxy. Orthodoxy. God is just kind of a sterile, lifeless, cold, uninvolved. You've got the Greek Orthodox Church, and you've got the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Russian, or, uh, the Russian Orthodox Church, and all these different orthodoxies where God is just kind of cold, and it's sterile, and it's lifeless, and it's uninvolved. Another dangerous era that we might mention would be that of politicism. Politicism, where the God is the state. You've got good leaders, and we usher in the kingdom, and our hope is in our officials. Our hope is in politics. Our hope is in legislation. Another dangerous era would be that of ecumenism. Ecumenism. God is uncritical. He's uncritical, and he wants us all to unite together. He just wants everybody to get along, to live in harmony, and just kind of look out for each other. Another dangerous season that would come is that of experientialism. Experientialism, where God becomes your personal experience. What I have experienced is my God. I know the Bible says that, but here's what I have experienced. What I've seen or experienced is supreme. It's my truth. Another word for that in the scholastic world would be existentialism. Or another dangerous era that is around is that of subjectivism. Subjectivism. Self is God. I think. I'm good. I don't want. I don't need that. I'm fine. Everything just becomes subjective. Your truth is fine. My truth is fine. What you want to believe is fine for you. Or another is mysticism. Mysticism, we determine truth by our feelings. We determine truth by our intuitions. Another dangerous era would be that of pragmatism. Pragmatism, you attempt to determine what is true by whatever produces the results that you want. And American Christianity and churches today are sort of the definition of that in a large general way. Number 10, another dangerous, dangerous epoch or season in the church, in the culture, in the the society in which we live is that of narcissism. Narcissism. I do what I want because I want to make myself happy. It's a self-centeredness absorbed in the web of entitlement. Self-infatuation. It's all that we see today of identity and transgenderism and, and just, I'll do whatever I want to do to others just so I can preserve myself and my own good feelings of myself. Now, you and I know that danger comes from outside. Jeremiah 14 talks about false teachers that can creep in. They say, peace, peace, but there is no peace. But we also have to be on guard against danger that comes from inside the church as well. Acts 20, from within your own midst, false teachers will arise, the Apostle Paul said. So what do you do in times like this? 
When you've got rationalism and mysticism and narcissism and existentialism and all these different dangerous seasons, what do you do? We do what Chrysostom did in the 300s when he preached the word of God and he offended the royal empress and she wanted to kill him and he was called the gold-tongued preacher. He was riveted to the Bible and he preached the scripture faithfully. We do what Peter Waldo and the Waldensians did in the 1100s in France when they were declared heretics by the Roman Catholic Church because guess what? They opened the Bible and they read and preached the Bible and they were wanted by the Roman Catholic Church and they had to meet underground because of persecution. Or we think of Roland Taylor in 1555 in the English Reformation. He was burnt by Bloody Mary because of his faithful preaching of the word of God. We do what Spurgeon did in the 1800s in what's called the downgrade controversy. When people are denying the inspiration of the Bible and they're sidelining the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, what did Spurgeon do? He kept teaching and preaching the word of God. Or in our transgender affirming, homosexual, tolerating, Bible illiterate, self-idolatrous generation, what do we do? How do we do Christian ministry in a difficult context? The only solution, preach the word. Preach the word. You have to do this because chapter 3 tells us of the sinful, the sinful context. This is a dangerous time in which we live. We have to preach the word of God. But we preach the word not only because of the sinful context in your outline. Number two, let me give you a second reason in Second Timothy why you must preach the word in a faithful church. Number two, because of the sufficient scriptures. Because of the sufficient scriptures. Now, look at chapter 3, verse 14. You, however, Paul says to Timothy, continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God's word, the Bible, is the sacred writings. It's the manual, the rule book, the compass, the directions. Isn't it great? There's no editing of this book. There's no update. There's no third Edition or third revision necessary. It doesn't need to be modernized or revised or updated. So what is our only authority as believers for all of life? It's the word of God, the Bible. And so at Christ Fellowship Bible Church, we affirm, we hold to the inerrancy of the Bible, that the Bible is absolutely without error from beginning to end. We affirm, number two, the infallibility of the Bible, that the Bible cannot fail. It cannot make a promise and then fail to keep its word. Third, we we hold to the clarity of the Bible or the perspicuity of the Bible. That the Bible can be read and it can be understood and it can be rightly interpreted as we have the Holy Spirit as our divine teacher 
within us. Number four, we hold to the inspiration of the Bible, that this book is not like any other book because it reads you and it's breathed out by God. Number five, we hold to the sufficiency of the Bible. It's what you need. It's all you need for life and for godliness. Now, I want to show you how Paul brings this out, because look at verses 14 and 15. And if you're taking notes, just jot down these three little phrases. And I want you to be encouraged by this. Number one, the scriptures are totally necessary. They are totally necessary. Verse 14, you are to continue in the things that you have learned and become convinced of. You know from where you've learned them, verse 15, from childhood. You know, boys and girls here in this place, you, you need to know that the word childhood means the nursing babies, the, the smallest of little infant, the, the tiniest of little babies, even from the youngest of childhood. Little Timothy learned the Bible from his godly mother. And we need to know that the scriptures are totally necessary. Father and mother, remember this. What do your children need? They need the scriptures. They need more of the scriptures. They need more of the reading of the Bible. They need more of the preaching of the Bible. Not less. They need more. The sacred writings. Did you notice in verse 15? Which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith. That's why we preach the Bible. Because the Bible is that which shows you Christ. And it shows you that you need to have faith in Christ. That you need to trust in Him. Because He's your only hope for eternal life. Boys and girls, that's your only hope in life. Men and women, that's our only hope in life. We can go to the culture out there and we say the same thing. That's their only hope. Jesus Christ. You must preach the word of God because we have the sufficient scriptures. They're totally necessary, but notice also they're totally inspired. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Notice the totality, all scripture, all of the Bible. We can't pick and choose parts that we like and parts that we think are accurate, parts that we don't want to focus on. No, no, no. All of Scripture, the totality of Scripture, every word of the text. Paul wasn't inspired. Jeremiah wasn't inspired. The text is inspired. Paul wrote a lot of letters. The ones that are in the Bible are the inspired ones. So the scriptures are totally necessary. They are totally inspired. And what that means when we say inspired, it's different than somebody saying, I felt inspired to write a song. Because when the Bible talks about being inspired or the scriptures are inspired, it means that they are the God-breathed communication from the very mouth of God. And there's a lot of talk nowadays about hearing from God, right? I want to hear from God. I, I have a word from God. God spoke to me. I had a dream and God said this. Look, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. But he doesn't speak outside of the Bible. You want to hear from God? Then read the Bible. Somebody says, I want to hear God out loud. Then read the Bible out loud. Because the Bible 
is the word of God and totally sufficient. And I believe that my duty here, church family, for you is I understand that you can't grow without the Bible. I can't grow without the Bible. We need the scriptures. They are totally necessary. They are totally inspired. And then third, in verse 17, they are totally sufficient. Why did God give us the word? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Equipped for every good work. Christian, I believe your Bible must be your compass. Your Bible should be your GPS. Your Bible must be your constant companion to read it, to study it, to know it, to obey it, to prize it. And God calls me and he summons me and he commissions me to know this book and to study this book and to preach this book. Like Ezra, Ezra 7.10. He set his heart to study the word of God, to obey the word of God, and then to teach the word of God. The word of God has the power to save, James 1.18. And the word of God has the power to sanctify, John 17.17. 17. The preaching of the word of God is what establishes you in the faith, according to Romans 16.25. And how you grow in your Christian life is by the word of God, 1 Peter 2.1 and 2. And the word of God, as it is read and preached, even protects you from sin. Psalm 119, verse 11. So God's word must be preached, number one, because of the dangerous and the sinful context in which we live. Number two, because we have the sufficient scriptures. Number three, let me give you a third reason. In the discourse as a whole, why must we preach the word? Number three, because of the supreme mandate. You know, if you went to if you went to work tomorrow morning and your 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 manager or your boss or team leader called you in and they said, Look, we're changing everything around, we're shuffling things around, there's one thing you've got to do. If you do anything, you can't neglect this. It's almost as though these verses in chapter four, one to five, have that kind of a tone, that kind of a background. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. If you and I were living in generations past in, let's just say, the country of Scotland, you would walk into this cathedral in Scotland and you would enter through the doors and you would find something that would be unmistakable right before your eyes. And that would be this huge pulpit towering right in front of you in the center of the sanctuary. And then there would be steps that would lead up to a raised platform on that pulpit. And in the worship service, there would be a man of God who would, at some point in that service, he would walk up the steps and then he would enter what was called a box. He would enter a box. And then there would be a man, he was the servant of the church, kind of like a deacon. He would be walking behind him up the stairs. And when the man entered the box, when the minister entered the box, the man behind him shut the door and locked it. Why? Because when that minister entered that pulpit, he had only one job. And you don't let him out until he's finished that job. He is to open the Bible. 
And he is to preach the gospel. And he is to exalt the majesty of God. And you don't unlock that door until he's done discharging his duty. The man of God would be raised and elevated. He would be serious. He would be solemn. He would be loud. And he would be central. So that everyone would see him and everyone would hear him. So that all the people present would hear the word of God expounded by the man of God sent by God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. I solemnly charge you. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. I believe how a man teaches the Bible reveals his view of God. How a man teaches and preaches reveals his view of Scripture. You can go to some places and you can hear a whole lot about a man and not a whole lot about the Bible. Verse 1 gives us the sobriety of this mandate. It's almost like the, the Apostle Paul to young Timothy is just putting layer upon layer or level upon level and giving witness upon witness upon witness of your calling to preach the word of God. Verse 1, I solemnly charge you. I'm your disciple or I'm the Apostle Paul. I charge you. But it's not just me. Let's just, let's just command you to do this in the presence of God. God is your witness. And not only in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And let's just add another layer of authority here. He's the judge of the living and the dead. And let's just add more. And he will appear and come again. And he's the king over the whole kingdom. Talk about a serious, sober mandate. And what is the mandate here? It is in verse 2. Preach the word. Preach the word. Notice there's two elements here. Preaching is how you say it. The word is what you say. Preaching is the heralding, the crying, the loud heralding forth of God's message clearly, faithfully delivering it in the way and the manner that God intended. Preaching is not teaching. It includes teaching, but it goes beyond teaching to the exhortation you must. 
Preaching is how you say it. The word is what you are to say. What's the word? Well, the context is 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is God-breathed. You're to preach the Bible, Timothy. Don't preach news. Don't preach culture. Don't preach current events. Don't preach social justice. Don't preach all these things. You need to preach the Bible. If, if a man has a high view of the Bible, he's going to preach the Bible. If a man has a high view of himself, he's going to seek to be funny and entertaining and winsome and charismatic so that people are won to him rather than wooed to the Savior. You see, the primary function of the church is the preaching of the Word of God. So, we love music. We love music. We love hymns. We love the worship songs. But the music is always to serve the preaching, not vice versa. The preaching is always to inform the praying. The preaching is to edify and build and strengthen believers so that you are equipped to do the work of ministry. We might say it like this. When a man preaches the word of God, it is the going forth of the voice of God. From his word, telling you what the Bible says, what you are to believe, and how you are to behave. If that's true, preaching is authoritative. It's authoritative because preaching is not the word of a man. It's the word of God. It has nothing to do with me, the man in front. It has everything to do with the one who is faithful to impart the truth of the scriptures. So I have nothing to say apart from the word of God. But in the faithful reading and preaching of the word, you and I could all acknowledge God is speaking to us. That's why preaching is imperative and preaching is preeminent and preaching is urgent and preaching is sober and preaching is serious and preaching is mandated and preaching is eternally weighty. No wonder. No wonder, no wonder, no wonder. Verse 3 is there. Well, my word, if, 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 if the preaching is this authoritative and this heavy and this serious and this sober-minded, there's going to be a struggle, verse 3. For the time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine. I don't think it's talking about the pagans out there. I think it's talking to people who find themselves in the context of the church. The time's going to come when there's people who sit under your preaching, Timothy, and they're not going to want to, they're not going to desire this sound doctrine. They're going to want to have their ears tickled. I've been there. You're, you're too hard, man. You're not funny enough. You, 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 you make too many demands. You preach too much law. You want to have your ears tickled and they, they go to another place where they have teachers in accordance to their own desires. That's the problem. You don't want to find a teacher that suits your desires. You want to find a teacher that says, here's what God says you need. 
Verse 4, and in so doing, they turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. Spurgeon, Spurgeon knew this, and he knew this well. And he, he, he had many people who came to the church and a lot of people who left the church. And Spurgeon said, I am the messenger. I tell you the master's message. And if you don't like the message I preach, then you need to quarrel with the Bible. Don't quarrel with me. So long as I have the Bible on my side, I dare and defy you to do anything against me insofar as I preach the text. You see, we want to keep our finger on the text. We preach Christ. We preach Him crucified. We preach Him buried. We preach Him risen. We preach Him Lord. We preach Him as the only hope of eternal life. Time will get tough. It's a singular mandate. It's a very singular mandate. We must preach the word. Notice verse 5 of chapter 4. You see it there at the end of this paragraph. But you, man of God, you, Paul says to Timothy, you must be sober. The word means serious. If there's one thing missing in pastoral ministry nowadays, I think it's seriousness in the pulpit. Be sober. Be serious in all things. Number two, endure hardship. Timothy, it's going to be tough. God never said it would be easy. Christ called you to a difficult work. We read Ezekiel. Thorns and thistles await you. The people you preach to are not going to listen to you, the prophet Ezekiel. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. You've got to be a proclaimer of the gospel. Fulfill your ministry. Don't quit. Don't burn out. Don't be disqualified. Don't be discouraged and give up and throw in the towel. Finish well. You see, by God's grace, I commit to steadfastly preaching the word of God. And if I could just share with you something, when I study the word and I study for sermons and I put my notes together and I'm praying through the word, I have very little concern. No, no, no. I have no concern for preaching what I want to preach or preaching what you want me to preach. That just doesn't even enter my mind. I want to preach what God wants me to preach as I keep preaching through books of the Bible. It's irrelevant to me whether people want it or whether people don't want it or whether people like it or whether people don't like it or whether I'm threatened or whatever it might be. I don't, it doesn't matter. God commands it. And so I must obey and preach the word. Why do we preach the word, number one, in our outline because of the sinful context. Number two, because of the sufficient scriptures. Number three, because of the supreme mandate. And now number four, just very quickly, number four, because of the singular ambition. How do you do ministry in a difficult context? Well, we must preach the word. You say, why? Because you have a singular ambition. And you know what that is? You want to finish the race of life well. You want to make it to heaven and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Look at verse 6. 
For I, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why do I preach the word? Because you have a singular ambition like Paul. You say, Pastor, I want to finish well. I want to die well. I want to run the full course. And I want to cross the finish line faithfully. That's your heart. That's the heart of a believer. The story is told of Hugh Latimer. I love this. He was brought before King Henry VIII. And he was brought before the royal king of England to preach. He preaches a sermon that is so bold, so evangelistic, so exclusive, that the king was so angry, he ordered Hugh Latimer, you need to appear next Sunday and apologize for what you preached. So he goes home and he prays and he studies and he meditates. The next Sunday comes. And after opening his Bible in front of the king, he reads the text that was before him. And then in his sermon introduction, he gave kind of a self-counsel. Here's what he said. Hugh Latimer, you are brought before the king of England and his majesty. You need to be careful. If you displease him, he might kill you. But ah, Hugh Latimer... Consider whose message you have, even by the great and mighty God who is all present. He beholds all the ways that you live and he is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, be careful that you deliver his message faithfully. After that introduction, he preached the same sermon he preached the last Sunday with even more passion. Well, he was tried and condemned and soon after Put to death. When he was about to be burned, there was another man, Nicholas Ridley, who was being burnt with him. And Hugh Latimer said, You need to be strong and be a man. Finish well. Don't, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. Finish well, live well, fight hard, run hard, finish strong. And what I love about verses 6 to 8 in the Greek text that Paul wrote, they are all emphatic verbs meant to bring out special prominence. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight and I have finished the course. And I have kept the faith. And yes, there is the crown of righteousness which God will give to me and to you. As you love him and wait for his appearing. Why do we preach the word in such a difficult context? Why do we do that? Well, we do it forth because of the singular ambition of the believers. You can take Paul's words and you say, preacher, I want to finish well. And I want to finish the course and I want to keep the faith. So preach the word and tell me how to live and tell me how to worship Christ each day of my life. You know, in drawing this to a close, it's been well said 
that to not preach the Bible, I mean, whatever else you have, music, buildings, budget, staff, whatever you have, if you don't have the preaching, it usurps the authority of God over a soul. If you don't have the preaching of the word of God, it actively wages war with the lordship of Christ over his church. If you don't have the preaching of the word of God, it hinders the work of the Holy Spirit because the spirit of God always and only works with his written word. James 1.18. When you don't preach the word of God, it demonstrates appalling pride and lack of submission to God. When a man does not preach the word of God, it severs the preacher from the sanctifying grace of studying the word of God each day. When a man does not preach the word of God, it prevents the preacher from being the voice of God on every issue. It turns into a here's what I think rather than here's what God says from the word. When a man does not preach the word of God, it robs the people of their only source of help. When the word of God is not preached, it encourages the people to become indifferent to the word of God. And to be indifferent to the divine authority on every matter. And when the word of God is not preached, it strips the pulpit of divine power. And, and, maybe just one more, if the word of God is not preached, it puts the responsibility on the preacher's gimmick and his personality and his charisma to change people by his own human abilities rather than the power of the word of God. So we're committed in Christian ministry, in difficult times, to preach The word of God. It honors God by respecting how he's revealed himself in the Bible. It highlights the unity of the Bible when it's preached. It promotes the work of holiness. It shows that the power is in the word. It submits to the authority of the word. Preaching the word offers rest from all the concerns and burdens of the world. Preaching the word models how to read the Bible. Preaching the word guards against my favorite hobby horses that I have as a preacher. Preaching the word bonds, pastor, and flock over time. Preaching the word follows the best examples of all the men in church history. Preaching the word of God feeds the people with the word of God. We're all hungry sheep. We don't want cotton candy. It might taste good for a moment, but it's not going to last. We want the pure milk of the word. We want the meat of the word. So I preach the word of God to feed you with truth and to feed you Christ and to feed you gospel hope. So I'll end with this. Contrary to many. And that's not an arrogant thing to say. It just shows how unique and yet how I strive by God's grace to be faithful. I care nothing about being cool. I want to be faithful. I don't don't need to update the message of the Bible. I'm called to herald the Bible faithfully. I, I don't stop preaching the Bible when I don't see the results that I want. 
I preach until God says, Jeff, your work is done. I'm not here to create or be clever or entertain. I'm not here to bring people in. I'm not here to be trendy or contextualized. I take the master's message and I preach it with authority and prayerful power as it is given because I'm an ambassador for the king of heaven. So, Timothy, Jeff, Christ Fellowship Bible Church elders, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his authority and by his, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and they will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. Father, thank you for your word. Christian ministry in a difficult context is very clear. It's laid out for us in the Bible. We must preach the word of God. By your grace, with your help, by your sustaining power. Keep us faithful and, O oh Father, other faithful churches. Keep them obedient to what you require as well. May we be those who are vigilant, absolutely vigilant, to proclaiming, thus says the Lord. Whatever hardship, whatever hostility, whatever persecution, whatever riot, whatever threat, Whatever manipulation, whatever difficulty or trial comes our way, please help us to remain faithful, to feed the flock of God through the preaching of the word of God. In Jesus' name we pray.